Well, thank you everyone this morning for helping out. Since we had a couple, uh, couple key people not here, uh, you know, uh, Michelle and the kids are sick. Or Michelle's not sick, but the kids are sick. You know, Millie, our secretary, is out of town. Um, so anytime when there's a couple key people that aren't here, sometimes it's a little difficult to get organized this morning, but you guys uh, jumped up to the occasion, so I appreciate that. Thanks for that. All right. Well, today, let's see what's going on here. So for, uh, for a couple of our guests, uh, what we've been doing here is been studying the Gospels uh, through a little bit of a cultural lens. Been looking at the times in life of Jesus. Many of us have read the Gospels and gained an understanding of the teachings of Jesus. But we may not have a depth of understanding of the history or the time period of what's going on. Uh, 2,000 years ago. It's quite, quite a bit time. And, um, you know, I spent uh, several years uh, living and studying in Jerusalem, in Israel. And it was a great time to understand the geography and the times and the place and the history of what's going on there. And so we're, we're doing a study to fill out some of the lessons and some of the stories of Jesus to get a better understanding of the history and its implications on us. So that's what we've been doing. Uh, and so today we're going to open up uh, Matthew chapter 6 and also chapter 20. Uh, a couple of verses out of there to gain an understanding of what Jesus is really teaching on. We need to step into the culture. So Matthew chapter 6 verse 7. Let's begin there. And this is the Lord speaking. He says, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions or babblings as the nations or the Gentiles do. For, think, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. And so in this manner, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And obviously, it goes on. We take a look at Matthew 20. We see something kind of similar that's being spoken about. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25 says, And Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your servant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So, what we have here in both of these scripture verses is a discussion that you as followers of Yeshua, followers of Jesus, are not to be like the nations. Uh, we, in modern translation, will say, don't be like the nations. But in the, uh, the original Hebrew and the Greek, it says, uh, do not be like the Goyim, which is the Gentiles. Which is kind of peculiar, because most of us here are born not Jewish. And so you're like, well, how can I, you know, be a disciple of Jesus and not be like the Gentiles or be like the nations if that's what I was brought up in? Well, it's a kind of an easy answer, right? The, the Lord says that when you come to faith, right, we're able to be adopted into the household of the sons of, of Abraham, uh, that we're a part of a new family now, that we are different now. We're not like the rest of the world. So in the scriptures, Gentile nations and even heathen are used the same way. 
And in both of these scripture verses, there's a common theme. It's a common theme throughout the whole Bible. Whether it's Moses, Abraham, David, Solomon, Josiah, the prophets, John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, Paul. They have a common theme. And the common theme is, do not be like the rest of the world. You are a holy nation. The nation of Israel. Now we, that are not Jewish, we get to be grafted in. We get to be adopted into that kind of calling. But we're not supposed to be like the rest of the world. And it's a common theme that keeps coming up. In fact, Peter, very specifically, says, not only are you not supposed to be like the rest of the world, but when the rest of the world sees you, they're supposed to see a strange and peculiar people. It's like, oh, okay, great. That does, that does a lot for my self-esteem. People are going to think that I'm strange and peculiar. Great. Cool. But it's the way it is, right? It fits. It fits. Um, Paul the Apostle goes on to give some, uh, you know, the great theologian there. Um, Paul goes on to even explain this in, in greater detail in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 17 of, of chapter 4, uh, Paul says this. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk or the nations. In the futility of their mind. So this is Paul addressing Greek, non-Jewish believers in Jesus saying, Hey guys, you're no longer a part of the rest of the Greeks. The Greeks walk in the futility of their mind. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the blindness of their heart. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness. To all works of uncleanliness with greed. So what happens here is the, the teachings of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, are all saying that the sons of Abraham, right, are to be a light unto the world. And now we get to be a part of that. We get to be a light unto the whole world. And, you know, Jesus himself says that the darkness cannot understand the light. And there's a certain peculiarity that's there. So I'm saying all this because what, what has happened here is I believe that there are uh, seven different aspects of the nations that have infiltrated our thinking in the church. Uh, and those types of thinking are still there. They're still there and I really believe that they need to be purged. They need to be, we need to set our minds free from the, the way that the world does things. The world does things and what we do is we just kind of put like a, a churchy kind of veneer on it. And we call it our own. But it's not the way of the Lord. So this is the seven aspects of the nations. This is what Joshua put together. It's very beautiful. Uh, and uh, I had to change it, as you can tell. It's not as graphically cool. I had to go from seven to five because I'm like looking at this. I'm like, this is going to be way, this is like, this, this is like mental overload. And spiritual over, 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 overload. So I went from seven to five. I just, I just dropped. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I figured it's kind of, it's kind of an illustration. So we're actually going to go down to five things because there's so much. Uh, but seven is nice. It's the number of completion and all that kind of stuff. But maybe we'll go to the other two another time. <clears throat> kind of build the other uh, stage of this. You have to understand, right? Uh, a belief in Jesus started out as a, a sect of Judaism, right? His disciples are all Jewish. They're living in Israel, for crying out loud, right? Uh, hence, you know, the flag that was being, uh, um, um, I guess you want to call it, uh, 
raised up uh, today. And what happened here is as the faith went forward into the rest of the empire of Rome, the Greeks and the Romans started to throw their culture onto the faith of Jesus. And it began to kind of take on its own kind of view. Some of the things are like, for example, the Greeks, they love, they love the aesthetic. They love beauty. They love art. They had beautiful temples. So once, once the faith of Messiah went to the Greeks and the Romans, what did they start to do? They started to make their own temples. So we're going from like a temple of Apollo and Zeus, and now we're building churches that are very ornate and beautiful uh, for Jesus. Not necessarily bad, but it's not a biblical way of thinking. Second thing, uh, the Greeks and the Romans are, like they are, I mean, they are, they are like the, the foundations to the, uh, the Germans. They are very orderly. They like things structured. And in their services, if you will, they had a very structured kind of service. Uh, and I'm talking about a service before the coming of Jesus, which is really bizarre, is that the Greeks and the Romans kind of did this. Right, what we're doing right now, they kind of did something like this. But they took the God of Israel out, and what they had was they had the God of the Greeks. Um, what would happen here is there would be people that would study Socrates and Plato and all these great Greek minds. This is before the coming of the times of Jesus. They would study, 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 and they would go around the Greco-Roman Empire, and they would go out to a street, and they would start to teach about Socrates and Plato and everything. Uh, and what they would do is when they were doing that, they would almost kind of like leave out a hat. Like, if you like what I just talked about, please put some money in. And if the town really, really liked you, they would invite you into the town hall, and now you would go on the town's kind of like salary. And once a week, you would give a lecture to the town on Socrates, on Plato, on Zeus, and we would pay you for that service. So... Without going too deep into the weeds and offending too many people, the whole structure largely of how a church is done, page clergy, paid clergy, all that kind of stuff, does not come from first century Israel. It does not even come from biblical standards. It actually comes from the Greco-Roman mindset. Just so you know. And it's not that it's necessarily bad. But we have to be mindful of these things to see if it enters into the way that we think. The Catholic Church really did this quite a bit. Uh, they adopted from a Greek uh, religion called Mithraism. Uh, that is, uh, in Mithraism, they would call their, their, their clergy paeter, or in Latin and Greek, it would be, uh, in English, it would be father. This is where we get the notion of calling a priest a father. Even though Jesus says that you are to call no man father except for he that is in heaven. Right? Um, there's a lot of very interesting iconography and, and all this kind of stuff that has entered into a church world um, that, that has this pagan influence. And I'm not going to really get into that because that's like a whole other like classroom lecture series and it's going to take too much. But what I'm really trying to establish here is that in, in, in even in the way of history, in the way of philosophy, in the way of science... Today, in the essentially beginning in the 20th century and now into the 21st century, there's a new Greco-Roman culture. And that Greco-Roman culture today is the West. The United States of America is very, very powerful as a culture and has adopted many, many things from the Greco-Roman world. 
And so this is where we're going to get into. Uh, many churches today have more in common with the Beatles, Walmart, Tony Robbins, and Harvard than with the devoted lovers of Jesus in the first century. That should be like an ouch, no? Okay. Let's talk about this. We have to be very mindful of us, especially mindful because we're a small church, but as we grow, we're going to have to, there's going to be added, um, added um, what do you want to call it, like temptations to, to do things the way that the Greco-Romans do it, opposed to first century followers. So what am I getting at here? The Beatles. Uh, many churches are, are focusing on an upbeat musical performance instead of contending for the presence of God. I'm not calling out any churches out in name because I would never do that. But many of us have been to a place where it's very flashy, it's very showy, and that's really cool and all uh, because it can actually create an emotional experience just from the use of lights and smoke and all this kind of stuff. But that's kind of the Beatles version, right? Uh, the Walmart church, this is the one that uh, I'm really kind of sensitive about. It's a Walmart church where you go to Walmart and you, like, you pick what you want off the shelf and you leave everything else. Like, I, I like this. They, they have this service for me and they have this protocol and they have this club and they have this. And I'm going to take it. I'm just going to kind of go away and do my thing. It's a church atmosphere where you can go and you, you can take things, but you're never compelled to think about giving things. Is a church, I mean, usually it's a church of a certain size that they, they may not need you, right? But it's an atmosphere and a mindset. It can even happen here where you come to church and you take off the shelf, but you never give back. I mean, once you like grow up in the faith, it's like church is not about getting. It's not. It's a, it's a place where you're able to give to others and minister to others. And through that, you get, of course, right? We know that. But it focuses on, like, I need to go there for the youth group or for this or for that. It's like, I get to go to a place where I get to give. But the Walmart mentality of church is, hey, look at all the stuff they have. I'm going to take this and leave that. I'm never going to give back. I'm just going to walk out. What can I get, not what I can give? It's a very dangerous place. Anyone not know of Tony Robbins? Such, such an interesting guy. Uh, it's, um, it's very interesting. This guy is worth billions of dollars, literally. He's a self-help guru. He does these conferences. Like, you can go to a conference. It's like a thousand bucks to go. Two thousand bucks, three thousand bucks to go. Depending on which conference you go to. New York Times bestseller. He's got podcasts. Also, he's, uh, he's essentially a self-help guru. Never, uh, yeah, he's, the guy's amazing if you look at, like, what he, what he does. I mean... There's so much to talk about him. He was actually born in a, a Zusa. So Zusa Street, the Zusa Street Revival, this guy was tapped into something. He's born into the place of the Pentecostal Revival, and now he's taking this for like a self-help kind of thing. We can talk about that on the side, because it's, it's a very interesting spiritual practice. But for the rest of us, what, what is the self-help guru? It's a, it's a church that is experiencing, like, how do you self-help yourself without preaching and talking about the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus? And the death of your inclinations, and the death of your sin, and being having order coming out of chaos. It's the notion of just come and we're going to tell you how to live and get all feeling all good and all that kind of stuff and you walk away. And it's a major aspect of the Western church. Because it's taking this concept from the new Greco-Roman world. Harvard. Uh, this is the church where, you know, you have to have highly, highly trained people, Right? 
the, the, the MD, the, the, the MDiv, right, a ministry of a, a master's in uh, divinity or a PhD in theology. You know, you can't be used in the church until you've gone through all these classes and you're appropriately educated. Now you're ready to be used by God because you have the right diplomas and stuff. I mean, it's totally, it's totally crazy because, like, Jesus has a bunch of fishermen, right? Who could barely, you know, barely, you know, put too many sentences together. He's in Scripture saying, who are these untrained men who are, like, speaking with such power and such force? So there's the Harvard church, which gravitates to the, the high intellectuals, right? The teachings may be on not just the Gospels, but on psychology and all this kind of stuff. Which isn't necessarily bad because there's, there's psychological principles in the Bible, of course. Yeah. Um, the next is the Google, the Google kind of church. Uh, and this is, um, Google is, is known uh, to be a corporation that attracts the, the best minds. Um, it's, it's considered one of the best and most interesting places to, 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 to work. Like if you ever go on, uh, on YouTube, you can type in like uh, Google Campus. It's insane. You're like, you get to work there? Literally, like people are working in beanbag chairs. Anytime you're feeling stressed out, you can go to the gym on Google's time. They have free shakes, like a free shake place. They have video games they can play, ping pong, just to kind of keep the creative juices going. I'm not kidding. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. You have to, you have to, you have to look it up. You have to Google it about Google. <laughs> What's the purpose here? The beanbag chairs, all this kind of, kind of hippy-dippy kind of stuff. It is a corporation, or rather I say a church, that is attempting to really do things to attract the younger crowd. There's nothing wrong with that. We probably should be doing things to attract a younger crowd. But they are doing that, and they're using principles outside of the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the transformation power of being that he gives us. And instead of doing that, they make things very flashy and cool to try to bring the young people in. It's cool to bring young people in, but at some point, young people have to grow up in the faith. So this is all taking us to this place of how much of the new Greco-Roman mindset is in your mind or spirit right now. There we go. There is a very, very big dif- difference in the, the difference between Hebrew thought and Greek thought. There are two different peoples. There's a lot to talk about, so that's why I went from seven to five. But essentially what we're getting here, here is, is, is Israel is really, even today, is right on the line between the Western world and the Eastern world. It's right there. I mean, you go... Five miles east from Jerusalem, you're like, whoa, where is the West? Right? You're in the middle of the West Bank. You're in the middle of, uh, of suicide tactics and jihadists and extremists. You're like, and then, then you go a little further east, and I don't know, you're in Jordan, and then you're in Saudi Arabia, and you're in Iraq. You're, you're in a whole other playing field, man. And if you just you know, go a little west, well, then you're in Italy. It's like, oh, well, okay, what's going on? It's like cultural whiplash, if you will, Okay. And so the Hebrews and the Greeks, 2,000 years ago, and even today, the Western and Eastern world have very different ways of looking at things. Very different things. Um, And so we're going to go through that a little bit and see how much of that Greek thinking entered into your mind, opposed to how the Bible is viewing things. Okay? 
So the first principle I wanted to go over, and today's going to be a little bit more teaching than preaching, I think. We'll see how the Holy Spirit leads, but is this. Um, the biblical or the Hebraic mind says that time is more important than place. The Greek mind says that places are important. The Hebraic mind, the mind of Jesus and the culture in which he was in, time is more important than the place. So what's more important than you coming to this place on a Sunday morning? What's more important than that? Having time with the Lord all week long. Like the Greek mind is like, oh, I have my checklist. I came to church. I'm good for the week. That's a Greek mindset. I have a, a checklist. It's done. It's been completed. I'm good to go. Or maybe it's, hey, I had my quiet time this morning. I read my five minutes. It's, it's done. I said my prayer before I ate. It's done. That is not the way the Bible teaches. Time is the, one of the most holy things in the scriptures. The first time the word kadosh, holy, is used in the Bible. Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord made the Sabbath day. You are to keep it kadosh. You are to keep it holy. The Greek mind thinks of places being holy. The Hebraic mind thinks as time being holy. It doesn't matter that you're in this church with a roof that is leaking. What matters here is our time together, whether it's here or outside or in a Wawa or at someone's house. Time with each other and time with the Lord is what is holy and important. Not a place. You're like, well, well I don't know. The Lord built a temple. He did after David like, twisted his arm. David said, come on, I want to be like the rest of the nations, he says. All the other nations have a temple to their God. And God is like, are you serious? Like, my, my presence cannot be housed in, in, in stones, man. I know you can't. David, this conversation actually happens in the Bible. I know it can't, but we just want to be like the rest of the, the nations. Fine, I'll give it to you. Build it. I won't let you build it, but your son can build it. Solid. His presence cannot be housed in just a building. We are living stones, the scriptures say. His presence in it is in all of us. In fact, His presence in His glory is so magnificent that the Scriptures say that if you and I never declare the goodness of Him, that even the rocks would cry out in worship to Him. That's His presence. His presence is everywhere, man. It doesn't matter what you're going through, Psalm 139, right? Whether you're in the dumps, in the hospital, whatever, you just have to sit your gaze upon Him. It doesn't matter where you are physically. The Greeks think about physical. The, the, the Jewish people or the Hebraic people are thinking much, much more heavenly and eternal. God is so big and his presence is so amazing. It doesn't matter where you are. It matters the time when you set your eyes on him. It's time to set your eyes on him. It's time to set your eyes on him. And that was the power, the power of the Sabbath day. Stop all of your work and step into holiness with God. Step into holiness with him. So, places and buildings will not last. Time is eternal. I mean, this place, I mean, I hate to be so, more, like, this place is going to, like, it's not going to exist forever, right? I mean, this building is going to crumble at some point. But time with God, oh, that's eternal. 
So you have to step into eternity with God. You don't have that time with Him. And it's more than, oh, I did my quiet time today. It is walking in stride with the presence of God wherever you are. No matter what you're going through. Not I have to get my fix on and do my certain prayers. That's, that's the Greek way of thinking. David's like, even if I make my bed in Shaul, the, the dark places, bad places, you're still there to, to be with me and show me the direction. Amen? Right. All right, this one's good. Lording over or having dominion over someone is not God's desire. Uh, I don't know what your experience has been in, uh, in church world. Um, I've been through experiences where I felt like I was being controlled. There was a bit of a domineering presence uh, that, was, that was getting a little too controlling in my life. I was like, whoa, what's going on here? And we can look at things in that way, but we can also look at the things in, in fact, of how we interact with one another. I'm just going to be real. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's the culture in which you've been brought up in. Too many of us in the church world and too many of us in here look to Pastor Dave to do things in service. That is not the biblical way of thinking about things. Too many of us will look to Bill to lead that portion. Too many of us will look to John to do the soundboard. Too many of us will look to Mario to lead worship. That is the Greek professional way of looking at things. The biblical way is, 1 Corinthians 14, as often as you come together, make sure each and every one of you has a a song, a testimony, a teaching. Like, I can't wait for the day when I have something planned, like to teach, and someone's like, I really feel the Lord is telling me I gotta teach today. (laughs) It's at that point where I'm like, success, right? But the Greek mind looks at the dude who has the microphone and has his shirt tucked in. That's a whole other story. You know, that's been trained in this stuff and then it's supposed to teach. It's not the way it was. And even in Israel today, on every street corner, there's a rabbi. There's like three rabbis on the same street. You're like, well, who do you follow? You follow the one that you didn't follow. And, and like everyone, like there's, it's much more how I say it. Uh, actually, I think in the slide it says it. It's much more egalitarian than hierarchical. Hierarchical is, I am the guy in charge here. We've got elders underneath us. And there's this whole kind of order. For certain things, there needs to be order, right? And there needs to be order to get things done and to have appropriate protocol. But once it becomes a situation where these people are going to be in charge of bringing forth the Spirit of God and the teaching and the education and the involvement of everyone, you have just become a Greek. You just became a Greek. You were called to be priests. Not me. All of us were called to be priests and to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, not a joyful musical talent unto the Lord. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. What do priests do? They minister to one another and they minister to God. So man, I'm telling you, success will look like when Dave is less and less and less and you guys are more and more and more. That would be biblical Hebraic success. But the Greeks, what do they like to do? 
They like to hold on to the order. Look, there's a reason why the, the Greeks and the Romans were able to conquer the world. They're highly, highly efficient and orderly. Ancient Israel, not conquering the world. They're not so organized. It's like, ah, who cares about the rest of the world when we have the Lord? There's a reason why the Greeks and the Romans create beautiful structures and sculptures and philosophy. Like ancient Israel has no beautiful sculptures or art. What they have is a book of ideas and views of God, the Bible. It's amazing. They don't have anything else but that. Because they don't have this kind of highly structured society. And you even see it today in modern day Israel. Like, when you're in modern day Israel, like, there has to be a God because there's no way that this society would exist. Because it, just, everything's so, so, in many ways, disorderly. Anyone who has to like, talk to a bureaucrat or a ministry of foreign affairs, you're like, oh my gosh, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Our Israeli citizens are joking at that, right? Oh, it's insane. Yeah, absolutely. The Greek and the Romans. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's true. When you try to hold on to your own, is anyone else hot in here? No. All right. When you when you try when you try to hold on when you try to hold on to your own uh, order, right? Things fall apart. When God is able to order things, things survive. Yes, in some regards, absolutely. So, yeah. So, what we have here is this. I want to clarify this. This is very powerful stuff. This, this, this is now getting a little bit more uh, academic, but we'll, we'll move on from those academic things in some regards. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. As they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Man, is one, I should like, I feel like I should say this every week, like, obey me. Oh my gosh, that is so not what is supposed to be meant by the scripture verse. Um, if you actually take a look at those scripture verses that talk about obeying, how should we say it, obeying those that are over you, uh, obeying um, those that are in the church, the pastors, the elders, Obedience, obedience, obedience. Uh, it's actually a pretty unfortunate yeah, interpretation that you're going to get. Um, King James is the first guy to really translate the Bible into English. King James is a king. He's like, if I translate this into English, I have an opportunity to, to control the people through religion now. And what he does is he puts his own mojo and his own realities in there. It's unbelievable. And in fact, other people were calling him out on it. And they had to flee England. They had to go to Switzerland and create the Geneva Bible. Because they're like, you're going to be killed for this. This guy was so full of himself as a king that he puts his name in the Bible. There is no disciple named James. Sorry. There's not many Jewish boys named James. His, the, the disciple known as James is Yaakov, Jacob. The book of James should be the book of Jacob. That was James's name. But King James, wanting his name in the Bible, says, ah, we're not going to make it Jacob, we're going to make it James. 
That is how much power and authority this guy wanted to use the Bible for. So by that, I'm telling you, if you look at this stuff, it's amazing. He causes the translators to kind of translate things to really show the importance of listening to your leaders and obeying your masters. Why? Because he's a king. If you really look at the Greek, the Greek word to obey here actually is to have confidence in. Like, you're not supposed to obey me or obey the elders. You're supposed to have confidence in them. That they know what they're doing and they've been here before and there's a certain level of confidence in what they're doing. Way different. It's not like I'm the man of God, you're supposed to listen to me. No, no, no. You are to have confidence in me and confidence in who the Lord has put here, but that's not blind obedience. Heck no. Submit actually means to show preference towards one another. It's not like I submit like a dog submits to you. It's, it's, it's showing preference to one another in love. Yeah. Not like you rule over me, I'm a little doggy, and all right, I'll do what you say. I mean, no, 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 no. It's, it's just like a marriage, right? Have confidence in your spouse. Love one another in submission. It's not like my, my spouse is going to rule over me now. No, it's showing preference of love towards one another. Uh, an elder, a bishop, an elder, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the Greek is overseer, is really what it means. And an overseer is those who have gone before you. Those who have gone before you. An elder is not like some mystical position. It's someone who has gone before us. That maybe they're older than us. Maybe have more experience in things. Right? Um, I'll go to people and ask them things that I don't, I, don't, I don't know because I've never walked in that before. But they have. I'm going to go to Rich Green and I'm going to go and talk to him uh, when dealing with problems with my car. He has gone there before. I haven't. I don't know about that. So your elders and your leaders, those that we have in the church, which we do have, are those who have done this before. And so we are to have confidence in what they are, not blind obedience. Amen? That, that may just help some of, some of those who maybe have come from a little bit more structured, orderly, controlling spiritual environment, which maybe some of us haven't. Number three. Uh, you do not have to try to convince God. He knows what you need. The Greco-Roman mindset was one where literally they would give up sacrifices unto the pagan gods to try to convince them of things. They would maim themselves. They would cut themselves. They would whip themselves. They would fast for long periods of time to try to convince God of something. But as I said in Matthew chapter 6, do not pray like them who just babble and babble and babble and babble and babble and babble trying to convince me. God's saying, I know you that personally, that I know what you need. So pray like this, right? Follow, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come on earth, right? Some of us have this notion that you have to do something to prove to God his love for you. If I just do all of these things, God will now love me more. That is a completely Greek mindset. 
He already loves you. He already knows what you need. What he wants is holy time with you. A relationship with you. So you don't have to babble and, and try to twist his arm. And, you know, if I just do this, then I'll get this. If I just help the poor, then I'll get this. No. That is a formula-based faith system, which the Greeks and the Romans try to do. And that type of thinking can leak in quite a bit. Uh, the scriptures say that we are to pray for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done. And it also says that uh, when we pray, we are supposed to pray with thanksgiving. Thanks. Not a laundry list of prayers. I need this, I need this, I need this, please get me this. If you do that. No, we lift up praise and thanksgiving to him. He knows what we need. So kind of process this. God is not your servant. He is a father to be worshipped. He already knows what you need. My favorite one here, and maybe this could be in kind of sort of closing up. We have the worship team to come up. Uh, it is okay to allow room for mystery. It is okay to allow room for the unknown. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to know everything. If you do, you probably are not thinking high and deep enough about his love. There are things I don't know. Lots of things I don't know. That's not a negative. I would argue if you have your spiritual grid all mapped out and everything orderly and everything good, you probably don't have much of a spiritual grid because you're thinking way too low. When you really contemplate the heights, the depths, the width of his love, you are completely speechless and full of awe of who he is in reverence. But if you're one of these people who have an answer for everything, oh my gosh, I'm going to answer this, I'm going to answer that, I'm going to answer this. Man, you are so Greek, it's disgusting. It is okay. It's okay to not know. His wonder fills the earth. If you know everything, you have no sense of wonder. How majestic are your ways, O Lord? As the mountains are over the land, are your ways and your majesty. One of my favorite philosophers, theologians, is a guy by the name of Rabbi Abraham Heschel. He has this quote, the Greeks learn to comprehend, the Hebrews learn to revere, the modern man learns in order to use. The Greek philosophy and the Greek mind is like, I must know something before I do something. The purpose of study, the purpose of going to school, the purpose of reading, the purpose of thinking is so that I can comprehend and I can be a higher intellectual being. But he says the Hebrews have a different way of looking at things and those are people that we are called into, the sons of Abraham. We study, we learn, we read, we contemplate, not to completely understand, but so that we can revere who God is and the beauty of who he is. Then he goes on to say the modern man learns in order to use. 
He's not even saying we're Greek anymore. Modern man. Just study, study, study so you can use to make money. I'm not saying it's necessarily bad because, you know, people have to get paid. But this is the notion of like, you know, I'm going to study, 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 write some kind of Christian book, and now I'm going to use it. I'm going to sell it. The Greeks studied not for the purpose of making money. They studied for the purpose of being a more enlightened human being. The Hebrews studied not to make a living. They studied to be able to comprehend the greatness and the awe of who God is. But many of us, whether in the church or not in the church, we study, study, study so that we can use, so we can make money. I want to become a musician in worship so that I can sell that album at conferences. It's not necessarily bad, but it cannot be your goal and your motivation. This has another level to it. The Greek thought is one of linear thought. Start, finish, this is how I get there. And this is where we get into this concept in the church where people have to know before you do. In the Greek mind, everything is a formula. I've heard it here. I've totally seen it in the Western church. How do you pray for someone who has cancer and needs to be healed? How do you do that? Well, go buy this book and read it. And this is how you heal someone when you pray for someone. Here's a 300-page book in order how to do it. Okay. How do, you, how do you appropriately grow a church? Here's the business plan of how to do it, and here's another 200-page book. Know before you do. How do you appropriately, what's the best way to do worship? You start with some fast songs, you do some slow songs, you use these key progressions, you use this, you do all this kind of stuff. Know before you do. It is a Greek way of thinking that has entered the church. There's almost an obsession of Greek thinking. This is why Christians get so enthralled with systematic theologies and creeds and doctrines and what do you know and what's your stance on this and what's your stance on that and all this kind of crazy stuff. But it's so funny because the Bible and the teachings of Jesus don't do that. It's not that you know and then you will finally do. It is completely opposite. It is do and then you will know. Don't try to figure everything out and then have a relationship with God. No, have a relationship with God and everything is going to work out. But wait, but wait, I don't know how to teach and I need to know how to do that. I need to study and I need to do all these things and then I can be a teacher of the word. No, be a teacher of the word and everything else is going to work out. But I got to go to this conference and I got to learn how to cast out demons. I got to learn how to pray for the sick and I got to learn about all this stuff. And then I can do it. That's fine. That's just a very Greek way of doing things. And it's not biblical. Obedience is better than sacrifice. You obey God in what you know already. And then he gives you more. It's so funny, like if Jesus was around today, you'd be like, well, like say he was like a pastor, right? Well, Jesus, the pastor down the street, he's not doing what these guys do. These guys are saying that in order to pray for someone that has a disease, you have to take this, you should take, really should take this class. 
and you really should read this book and you do all these things. But like, Jesus, like the people that go to the church, Jesus, he just says, go, take a staff, no food and no bag. And just go and lay your hands on the sick and command that they be healed. Wait, they're not reading all these books and trying to figure all these things out. They just do it in obedience. And everything else seems to work out for them. Peter didn't read the 300-page book. I'm not saying the 300-page book is bad. It's, it's, It's a nice thing. It may give you deeper understanding. But do not be like a Greek. Because the mindset of a Greek is going to keep you from moving. It's going to keep you paralyzed in fear. And you can take this into your workforce. Like, oh, before I do this career, before I start this new project, before I start this new song, I have to have this all figured out. No, just walk and do by faith and watch him provide. That is the biblical way of doing things. So... The disciples go out, they do what Jesus says, and they don't have a lot of success. They come back and they're like, hey, we were praying for people and it wasn't working. And what does Jesus say? Oh, that's right. For those cases, you should fast. And then they learn, oh, I have to fast. Fasting is denying yourself some food, usually. Not for any kind of like mystical twisting of God's arm, but it's a way to settle your mind, to focus on Him and those things that matter. Essentially what He's saying is the reason why you're not seeing what you're supposed to be seeing is because you haven't drawn close enough to me yet. Amen. Let's get a little closer. Let's get a little deeper into relationship. Revere me more. We cannot become a people who are like the nations. The last one here is this. Do not adopt the culture in order to convince the culture. I think it's important to be culturally relevant. I don't wear a tie and I don't wear a suit. Why? Because too many people have a bad experience with church with people being all like high and mighty and organized and you have to have a a shirt and a tie. Now for some of you that are older, you're like, oh, that's just, you know, that's respectful. For younger people, it's a sign of, of too much order and control. So I tuck my shirt in and try to make everyone happy. But no shirt and tie for that. You try to be somewhat culturally relevant, right? You try to be somewhat culturally relevant. But we are not to adopt the way in which the Greeks and the Romans in the West do things. Why? Because you are a strange and peculiar people. The church grows not because of a business plan. Your own personal spirituality does not grow because of some self-help guide. It grows when we begin to adopt an understanding of to revere and wonder about God again. Be like children, he says. What do children do? Why? 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 They're inquisitive. They're full of wonder. But when we become adults, we have everything figured out, don't we? I mean, some of us have our funeral figured out already. It's paid for. The casket is bought. I got the plot. It's like, oh. Holy cow, be a child again. 
wonder why does this work this way, Lord? And you're going to have a freshness to your life again. In a way, you got to become, you got to almost become Peter Pan again. You got to become a child again. You can't grow up. Grow up, everyone has everything figured out. There's no life, there's no adventure, and there's no wonder anymore. The Greeks, the Romans, the Germans, the West, the Americans are highly organized and have everything figured out and comprehended. But you're called to step into wonder and the awe and the majesty of who he is. And that can only happen when it's okay. Can I have everything figured out? That is the way of more of this Eastern type of thinking. So Father, we just pray right now that we are not paralyzed in our fears. We just pray against paralysis right now. Oh, I can't sing at church because I don't have a good voice. Lord, we, we, we pray against that. I don't know, I can't, I can't step into this new endeavor of a career or a job because I have no experience with that. We just pray against that paralysis of fear. Oh, I can't pray for someone because I don't speak well and I don't know what to do. Lord, we just pray against that paralysis of fear and we replace it with adventure. Stepping into the great unknown. Did not, did, not, did not our father say unto Abraham, leave your nation and go into a place that I will show you. Lord, we pray that we have the ability to step into places that you show us. Step by step. Step by step, just being led by your spirit, being led by your peace, being led by your love. Amen? Amen. Why don't we uh, stand? And um, we're going to close out service now. So if you, if you would like to go, or if you need to go, we totally understand. There's, it's all good. If you want to go downstairs, there's some light refreshments and coffee if you like. We'll be down there in a little bit. But we also want to just open up this time right now for those people who would like to come forward and maybe just receive... Receive some prayer to get out of this Greek mindset. And stop trying to control and trying to have everything in order. But allow yourself to open your arms and say, Lord, I receive your wonder and your majesty and your awe again. I'm going to allow you to direct me. May have a couple people like to come down and get some Get some prayer and give some prayer. Eileen, if you can come down. Alan, if you can come on down. Sutta, if you can come on down. We just want to stand with those people that just need some prayer. But please, have a wonderful week. Thank you for coming or visiting. Maybe we'll see you downstairs.